Our God and Father, Lord, you are glorious and awesome. We rejoice at the very thought of you, God. Lord, you're perfect, and you're just altogether joyful and happy. Lord, you are eternally glorious and beautiful. Your being shines forth glory so bright it would blind us if we saw it. Your love is amazing, God. It's like the mighty mountains. And your justice is so pure and perfect. Oh Lord, surely you know right from wrong. And you're so kind as to tell us. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to come into this place to focus upon your holy word that you have given to us. I pray, God, that we would uh, be encouraged and exhorted in our faith to follow you, to walk after you in a manner that is worthy of you, that we would long for and desire to be like you. God, that you would give us strength in our faith. Lord, that you would help us when we're discouraged and depressed, that you would come and comfort and console us. I pray, Lord, that each day we would be reminded with great hope and with eager anticipation we would await your soon coming. Oh, Lord, we look to it eagerly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. We thank you that we can live in such a day as we see the the age to come approaching. And God, we pray that you would help us to be ministers of your gospel and of your good news that people would be saved. Oh, Lord, give us opportunities to preach, to speak. Fill our hearts with your gentleness and your love. And yet, Lord, with great boldness to tell people the truth. Help us, God. We thank you for the privilege of being adopted into your family, being called your children, receiving all the benefits of sonship. We thank you for the privilege of knowing you and loving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. With that, we are back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And last week we got all the way to verse 8. And you might remember that basically chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 is Paul's um, discourse about his own ministry to the Thessalonian church. And so as we learn about how Paul came and established this church, we, we learn about his evangelism and we learn about his disciple making and we learn about his apostolic ministry of establishing a church and in this we really have a model for christian ministry we have a model for christian leadership we have a model for a christian pastoral ministry and and we basically have a model for for christian discipleship and um, as paul describes this to us in in verses 1 through 12 we see all these characteristics. I had listed them out for you on, on uh, page 19. 
where Paul in verse 1 and 2 uh, had powerful, bold evangelism even in the face of opposition. Verses 3 and 4, that uh, the divine origin of the message is from God and not from men. Verses 5 and 6, we see the pure motives of Christian leaders. Verse 7, the gentle and nurturing care for young believers. Verse 8, the loving sacrifice of Christian leaders. Verse 9, the hard work of disciple-making. Verse 10, the genuine and upright example of Christian leaders. Verse 11, the firm discipline and guidance of Christian leaders. And verse 12, the goal of Christian discipleship, a holy life that glorifies God. Amen? And so in these verses, verse 1 through verse 12 of chapter 2, we see this model of Christian disciple-making. And so as Paul was going through this, he was describing to us how this took place. We ended last week in verses 7 and 8 where he said, We proved gentle to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. And here Paul is expressing his great love for the church. And he's expressing his great affection, he says, for the church here. And how this love and this affection caused Paul to be very nurturing and to tenderly care for the church. And the idea is as a mother, right? As a mother cares for her own children. And then he writes in verse 9 and 10, For you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. And so here again, he's bringing them to remembrance. He says, you recall... Um, you re- you remember that um, Paul keeps repeating this in this section of text that I think it's six times he repeats the idea um, one, two, three, four, five, six times he, he, he says to them you recall or as you know remember he's kind of giving a defense of, of how he behaved among them and what he did and he's calling their own memory to account they were eyewitnesses of what Paul did and as we had stated before, some, some ascertained from this that uh, Paul was under accusation from people who were trying to discredit the messenger uh, after he had left the church. And uh, surely uh, it wouldn't be outside of the uh, skills of these angry Jews to try to discredit Paul on those new believers he had left behind who were so powerfully and effectively changing their community and changing the surrounding communities. And uh, there, there probably was no small controversy um, after Paul had left there uh, and things that were being said about Paul. So he says to them, you recall how we were. You know how we were. We were there. You saw. You were eyewitnesses. And, um, but here in verse 9, <clears throat> what is it that they recall? He says, our labor and our hardship." 
You recall, brothers, our labor and our hardship. See here yet another characteristic of Paul's ministry, one of selfless sacrifice and hard work. He says here that they worked night and day and that this was labor and hardship, most probably in Paul's industry of tent making. In Acts 18, verses 1 through 4, we read this. After these things, he left Athens, that's Paul, and he went to Corinth. Now, you remember, Paul was in Athens after he had come from Berea. He got run out of Berea after he got ran out of Thessalonica, right? And he went down in Athens. Well, here we, we pick up after that. Uh, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So you see here that uh, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. They actually made tents. Because you, you realize in that day and time, tent was an essential dwelling for a lot of people. People were somewhat nomadic. And a tent was a house you could collapse and carry with you wherever you went. And uh, so there was a great need for this kind of work. Well, Paul did this. This is what Paul did. If Paul needed to make money, he would make tents. And obviously he was a very skilled tent maker because he says, when I came into Thessalonica, I worked night and day not to be a burden to any of you. And if in fact his trade was tent making, he must have been a very skillful tent maker because he was able to find work right away and immediately doing what he did. And so nevertheless, this is what Paul did. He worked as a tent maker when he wasn't preaching. He worked sewing together tents so that he could make money, so that he could have food, so that he could keep preaching. That's the idea here. He says we work night and day so that he wouldn't be a burden to them. Paul describes the motive of his working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. See again the integrity and sincerity of their discipling efforts. And to this he calls them to account, being eyewitnesses of his labor. He says, for you recall, brethren. He wanted them to recount his example among them and how they could not be open to the charge of being idle, nor of seeking the wealth of others, but rather an example of working hard with their own hands to support themselves. Now, get this. Paul is going to use this example of working hard and not being idle to call idle people in the church to account and to correct them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. There is a section of scripture where Paul has a severe rebuke for certain people in the Thessalonian church. And uh, not only that, he commands the church there to discipline these unruly believers who are being idle. Paul says in that place, if any man will not work, he will not eat. Right. And so... Um, uh, he, he, in, in doing so here, he's pointing them to his own example. He's saying, you know what I was like when I was there. I was working hard night and day. I wasn't idle. I wasn't just there 
uh, preaching, and he, he could not be open to the charge, as many false teachers were and are, right, of just seeking the wealth of others and not really working with their own hands to share, right? And uh, he could not be open to that charge uh, because he himself lived an example of this working hard. But he says here that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. Here we see the origin of Paul's gospel. It is the gospel of God, not the gospel of men. This is a curious title for the gospel. It's not given too many places in Scripture, but it's an interesting title indeed, the gospel of God. Now, we've heard of the gospel of the kingdom, and we've heard of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and here we hear of the gospel of God. Well, family, they're all synonymous, okay? They all mean the same thing. The good news concerning God, or the good news concerning Jesus Christ, or the good news concerning the kingdom of God, amen? All which the gospel proclaims. but here it is the gospel of God and not the gospel of men. It is the good news of the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he has already accomplished to reconcile rebel sinners to the holy God and to restore them to loving relations with him. I want you to hear what, what is being said here. It's the good news of the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he has accomplished. The gospel is a proclamation of something that's already taken place. Are you with me? It's not primarily about something that is going to happen. It's primarily about something that has already taken place, which is what? The person and the work of Jesus. That Jesus has come, God in the flesh, to the earth. What do we celebrate at Christmas? The incarnation of, of God himself. God has come in the flesh, in the Christ child of Christmas, right? Become a man, taken on an additional nature as a man, and lived his life so that he could live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God, give his life in sacrifice in fulfillment of the law of God and be raised from the dead to give us sound proof that he has conquered death and hell. Amen? And so this is something that has already happened in history, family. The gospel is something that has already happened in history. So when you think about it, you think about it in objective terms. It's something that Christ is and it's something that Christ did. And this is the thing we proclaim. What? What Christ did and who he is. The gospel is a message about the person and the work of Jesus. Okay, now, it also has a subjective dimension, which normally, right, in modern days or even in days gone by, we always hear about the subjective dimension. And, and we don't really understand the objective dimension, which I just explained to you. And so the subjective dimension is... There is a way that you receive what Christ has done, right? And that's through repentance and faith. You turn away from your sins. You trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your righteousness. But what is it that you're trusting in? You're trusting in the already finished work of the gospel that Jesus himself has fulfilled that he did some 1,900 years ago back in history. Are you with me? 
So even though there is this subjective dimension, even the subjective is subject to the object of the person in the work of Christ. Amen? Again, just trying to make the gospel clear. Concerning this statement, Leon Morris comments in, that this is the statement, the gospel of God. In 1 5, chapter 1, verse 5, it is our gospel. For the preachers were proclaiming something they knew for themselves and had made their very own. Here, what is singled out for attention is that the gospel is not of human origin, it is nothing less than God's plan for man's salvation. The Christian faith is not the accumulated wisdom of pious souls, nor the insight of men of religious genius, but the divine plan for dealing with our sin. You understand that what we are preaching is a message that comes from God. It's something that God has destined from ages past for this day and time. It is something that God has destined for this time in history. It is something that has come from where God is, from outside of time and space and broken into time and space in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to us through that agency. It's God's gospel. It's God's good news. It's God's plan to fix our sin problem. Are you with me? The gospel originates in God. It's something that comes from God. It's something that God accomplished. Amen? It was planned by the Father. It was purchased by the Son. And it is applied by the Spirit. Amen? It's God's gospel. It's the gospel of God. Consider that when a Christian shares the gospel of God's grace, they share an eternal message that never changes, of an eternal God who has completed a finished work of reconciliation to man to which nothing can be added. It is the proclamation that God has entered time and space in the person of Jesus Christ to sacrifice himself in order to buy his people back from sin and death and that this work was completed once, proved powerful by his resurrection from the dead, and that all this is left, all that is left is to receive the free gift of God's grace by repentance and faith. You understand what we mean when we say nothing can be added to the gospel? You understand that by nature we're all very religious. We, we have an innate created desire by God to worship. We have an innate desire to pursue something higher than ourselves. Why? Because we're the creature. And there is a creator who is so much higher. And because we are creatures, we seek for that which is higher than ourselves. And so this is the innate desire of mankind to worship. Well, you understand at the same time we've been given creative ability. We were made in the likeness of God. We were given intelligence. We were given emotional powers whereby we can be humble or we can be proud or we can be angry or we can be nice or we can be mean or we can be kind. We have all of this image of God written on our beings. Amen? And so it's also very easy for us to begin to worship ourselves. Or begin to worship something less than what is really worthy of our worship. Are you with me? And so here's this thing that always happens with mankind. And it always happens with the true religion. It's gone on in the true religion ever since there was a true religion. <laughs> which happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Okay? And, and here's what this deal is. 
We always want to merit for ourselves what we think we ought to deserve. And, and we, in, in the gospel family, we cannot think like this. The gospel is something that Christ has accomplished in history gone by. You cannot add anything to it. If, if I'm going to give you an example. Um, last year we were studying Roman Catholicism. And we talked about uh, some of the sacraments and so on and so forth. Well, you know, this is true of Roman Catholicism. It's also true of many other, other world religions, okay? That we seek to have something that we can go and do by where our conscience will be appeased that we have done the thing that God requires so that now we will feel better for ourselves and our guilty conscience can be uh, uh, attained and washed by our own work or our own merit. Okay, in other words, if I go to confession, I, I say my, my, uh, confess my sins before God and seek his forgiveness, you know, now I'm going to be okay, right? Or, or if I take a certain sacrament or perform a certain uh, duty before God, oh, now it's okay between me and God. Now my conscience is appeased, okay? What is it that we say about the blood of Christ and about the perfect life of Christ when we say that we must do something in order to please God apart from Christ? You understand what I'm saying? What we do is we say that the atonement of Christ is not sufficient to cover your sins and to expiate your guilt and to impute to you the righteousness of God. You remember when we talked about uh, uh, justification and we talked about the fact that justification was, was basically three things, propitiation, expiation, and imputation. Propitiation is God's wrath is satisfied towards sin. Expiation is our guilt is removed because our penalty has been paid. Therefore, our guilt no longer has any power, right? And that imputation is Christ's life of righteousness being credited to our account. Now, family, that is completely and utterly sufficient in and of itself. You cannot add to what Christ has done in history past. And this is the point that I'm trying to make about the gospel being objective. It's something that Christ did that we look back at. And we look back and we say, it is finished, right? Christ has finished the work. He's done what it takes to reconcile us unto God. Now what do we do to receive it? We simply open up our hearts and our hands and we say, God, I accept your free gift. That's too easy for us. <laughs> That's just too easy. You know, and so what we want to do is tie up a heavy load and put it on everybody's back. We do this as Christians. You know, we get saved and we get zealous and we want to obey God. And next thing you know, we're tying a back on, we're tying a load on everybody's back around us. We want to make a legalistic set of rules for everybody to obey and follow because, you know, all of a sudden we realize God is holy and everybody ought to do what's right. So now we go tying up loads and putting them on everybody's backs. Okay? And we get very legalistic and we get very uh, uh, zealous in our efforts to please God, which may have originally had a right motive. But family, if we're adding to the gospel, if we're saying that you must do this and that and the other in order for God to be pleased, Listen, we're missing the whole point of the gospel. We're looking through the forest and we can't see the trees. You understand? The gospel is about what Jesus has done to reconcile us to God. That's a finished work. Here's how the gospel works to make you live a holy life. You look at the cross. It's just like those serpents that bit those Israelites in the desert. 
And, and, the, and the Lord said, look up at the, at the brazen serpent and you'll be healed. And you know what the Bible says? They were bit by serpents. They looked up at the brazen serpent and they were healed. You understand? So, so here's how the gospel transforms your life. You look at the cross every day and you say, God, you're so glorious. Your love is so amazing. The hope that you've given me, the joy that's in my heart, I'm so grateful. I love you. Your gospel is glorious. Your kingdom is glorious. The vision, the beatific vision of your beauty, God, your character, your nature, the things you've revealed to me in salvation are so glorious. The last thing in the world I ever want to do is sin against you. I'm sorry. Do I look like T.D. Jakes here? (laughs) (laughs) So... My, my point, my point is, is this, family. Look, the thing that motivates us to obedience to God so that we don't do things that offend him and that we do do things that please him is gratitude. It's gratitude for receiving the free mercy of God even though we don't deserve it. And you know that every time you sin against God and then you get convicted in your heart and you begin to think about how wretched you are. And then you think about the cross and what God has done to forgive you. You know what happens? The cross washes your conscience. And you know what that does? That, again, motivates you by thanksgiving for what God has done and puts, again, puts a new, puts afresh in your heart a new desire, again, to please God. Now, how many times in a day can we do that? There's a song by Michael Card. I forget which one it is, but I love this line. It says, for the, for the Christian, every moment is new. Because I don't know about you, but I can sin against God in very few moments in time in succession, one after the other. That's how weak I am. But do you realize that what Christ has done to forgive my sin and wash me in spite of my disobedience is still powerful every single time I do it. And when I look at what Christ has done for me, I'm motivated again because I love God, because I'm grateful for what he did. We love him, why? Because he first loved us, because we look at his amazing love. We see an example of what love should be. And, and then what is happening is his love is being perfected in us over time. That's why we look back on our life and we see a decreasing frequency of sin. And we see an increasing frequency of righteousness and truth. And we see an increasing frequency of God's character in us, of God's gentleness and his patience and his kindness. And we're actually becoming some pretty amiable people, aren't we? (laughs) Amen? I mean, we're being changed, man. We're being transformed. How does that happen? As we look at the face of Christ, as we look into the word of God, we see Jesus, the living word. We see his holiness, his character, his virtue manifested before our eyes. And we say, oh, that's so glorious. God is so kind. And then we want to be kind. We see God's kindness and we say, that is so wonderful. Oh, that I could be like that. We begin to long for and desire to be like God. That's what changes this family. We're we're being changed by the power of God that's in us through the word, by the spirit. Okay? 
And obedience is, is just the form that we, that we live in in order to glorify God because it's our great desire. Are you with me? We're, we're not obeying God out of fear. Okay? We're, we're obeying God out of gratitude. <laughs> we should be afraid of sin because it brings awful consequences. Okay? We should be afraid of sin. If you, if you were in the first service, you know exactly what I mean. And if you're going to be in the second service and I still have breath, you're going to figure out <laughs> what I mean about you should be afraid of sin. Okay? But listen, for the Christian, our sins have been washed away. They have been judged by God at the cross, and Jesus was punished for them. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Gone. Washed away. Guilt removed. Are you with me? And so, so now what's left for us? <laughs> what's left for us is to be healed. Be healed. Be whole. Look at the glory of what Christ has done. Honor him for the thing that he has done to forgive you. Let that come into your heart and let it be the thing that motivates you to want to do what's right and to stop doing what's wrong. Listen, when you fly off the handle and yell at your kids or you yell at your husband or you yell at your wife or you you do the kind of evil that you do every day, I hope it's not worse than that. Here's what you need to do. You need to go back to the cross and say, Lord, you died so that I no longer have to be a slave to my anger. That I no longer have to be a slave to my sin. You have released me from that power. You have broken the chains of sin in my life. Please help me, Lord. I know when I do this, it doesn't please you. And it doesn't please me. And it hurts others. I don't want to do this anymore. And what's happening is our affections, our desires are being changed. So now what we want to do is we want to be kind and gracious and loving and patient with our family, with our spouse, with our neighbors. You understand? And this is how the virtues of Christ are being worked in us, and this is why we obey. We obey Christ because we want to be like Christ. Why? Because we have a vision of his glory and his virtue, and we realize he's, he's perfect, he's glorious. His virtue is that to be had and possessed and owned. Right? Are you with me? Man, I'm... I'm Somebody's got a message and all that. I know it. <laughs> okay. Repentance and faith is to turn from sins daily to follow Christ and to trust him only for our righteousness before God the Father to whom the believing sinner has been reconciled. And this we Christians do with much confidence knowing that he will accomplish what he desires with it, for it is the gospel of God. In other words, it's God's gospel. And you know what God does with it? Exactly what he designed it for. When he sends out the message of his grace and forgiveness, let me tell you, it has power to call his elect out of darkness, to set his love upon them, and to transform them into his children. And that's something God does by his spirit. We call it regeneration. Amen? This is what the gospel does. It transforms and it changes. You know, the, 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 uh, the name Jesus, you know what it means? It means the Lord saves. And this is exactly what God intended to do from the foundation of the earth was to save. 
And so when he sends out his gospel, that is exactly what it does. It's God's gospel, and it saves men. It's God's plan for men's salvation. Amen? Amen. Now, what is the origin of the gospel? God. God. Comes from God. Doesn't come from men. In other words, it's supernatural. It's not of this natural world. It comes from a supernatural God. And it breaks into this natural world and it causes supernatural results. And look at the picture that's before us, this little Thessalonian church. Talk about supernatural results. Amen? Here we see no small display of God's majesty and power in these idol-worshiping Gentiles. Amen? He says, you are witnesses. First he said, you recall, brethren. Now he says, you are witnesses, and so is God. Now think about what he's saying. Now he's saying, not only are you a witness, but so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Here Paul again calls them to account, saying, you are witnesses. But more than this, he calls them to account before God, stating, and so is God. Paul is ever mindful to tell us that we will give an account to God for everything that we do and say. This is fundamental to our understanding of the kingdom of God. In Hebrews 4.13, we read, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we have to do. Do you know there's nowhere you can run from God? If I make my dwelling in heaven, thou art there. If I fall to the depths of Sheol, behold, thou art with me. Thy right hand will guide me. Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I go? Nowhere. Nowhere. God is everywhere. God is all-seeing. God is all-knowing. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In other words, the application here, listen, be honest about your sin with yourself. You know why? Because you ain't fooling God. See, here's the deal. You know, we realize we can't fool God, so we kind of shuffle him off to the side, so we'll start fooling ourselves. Because we can fool ourselves. <laughs> we can deceive ourselves. We can start telling ourselves, oh, it's of no consequence. Oh, I know I did those things, but, uh, uh, you know, we've got 1,000 reasons to Sunday why those things don't really matter. But you know what the Bible says? It says all things are open and laid bare before him to whom we have to do. Nothing, no creature is hidden from God's sight. In other words, you better keep short accounts with God. Because he knows the end from the beginning. Amen? And you ain't fooling him. You with me? And so here's this other thing, you know. And in, in, in being a Christian has to do with embracing our sin. Embracing our sinful lifestyle. That's how we came to the cross. We came to the cross saying, wow, I just like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. He's got this big old load, man. He's had that thing forever. Boy, that's heavy. That's a heavy load. It hurts. Amen? 
man, when he gets to that cross and that thing comes off, whew, man, is he light. Man, is his burden light. And his burden easy. Amen? But man, when you carry your sins in your heart and you know how guilty you are and you haven't faced up before God, oh, man, are those things heavy. They are destructive. They only hurt you. Amen? And so <clears throat> I want to encourage you, encourage you to be honest with God about your sin. In Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon writes, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. We are not exactly sure Paul's motivation in reminding them of the power and example of the apostles' ministry to them. But nevertheless, he recounts their excellent behavior among them, stating how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. You know, this is an interesting statement by Paul. He says, you know, we came to you and we did this and we did that. And if you really didn't know what Paul's aim was, you might begin to think he was rather arrogant. You might begin to think he was a rather proud man. Listen to what he says. Uh, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. You know, I think we would be tent real tempted to think that Paul was real proud if we didn't believe him. If we didn't know he wasn't a man of truth. If we didn't know that when Paul opened his mouth, he spoke what was true. Are you with me? And here he doesn't testify of his own behavior for his own good. He testifies of his own behavior so he can call them to recount so that they can remember so that their trust in the message that they believed would be strengthened and encouraged. Are you with me? And that they would be encouraged to follow his example. He doesn't want them to become unruly. He doesn't want them to begin to live in a manner that's unworthy of God. He wants to remind them how he behaved. He wants to remind them to continue to be imitators of, of, of him and of the apostles like they had already been. He wants to encourage them to greater imitation, to be more and more like Paul was. And so he calls them to the account of what was true. And here Paul is very sincere in saying, you know how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Not only this, but he rightly identifies who the real Christians are. He says they are believers. In contrast to those who do not have faith in Christ or only a mere profession of it, not accompanied with fruit. See yet another characteristic of good Christian leaders. It is one of devout, upright, and blameless behavior. Christian missionaries, pastors, and deacons are to be men of upright character and moral purity. They are not to be open to any charge of sin or blame, but rather blameless and beyond reproach. It's an important thing for you to know that you're not to have leaders over you who disqualify themselves by living morally impure lives or living lives that do not reflect the integrity or honesty of Christ or living lives that are open to the charge of sin or blame. And family, if that happens among you, you are to make sure that you have more than one witness and you are to confront that sin problem. Are you with me? You ought to mark your leaders by this by upright, blameless, devout behavior. Amen? Amen. 
verses 11 and 12, he says, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, he had said already, um, we were like a mother gently nursing, like a mother cares for her own uh, uh, children, verse 7 and 8, right? We prove gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Now look what he says. He says, but we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. Paul was like a mother tenderly caring and he was like a father imploring and exhorting and encouraging. Right? Interesting the way that Paul describes his ministry. Paul being very zealous for their growth and seeking to have them rooted and grounded in the Christian faith was given to exhorting and encouraging and imploring them just as a father would his own children. Can you imagine what that looked like? (laughs) Can you imagine what it would be like to be discipled by the Apostle Paul? (laughs) Good night. (laughs) Encouraging, exhorting, and imploring. I can see this zealous Jew, this Pharisee of Pharisees, right? After he had been utterly transformed by the power of God, right? How zealous do you suppose he was for the holiness of these people? Are you with me? You kind of get a picture of what he means by exhorting, encouraging, and imploring. Amen? Like a Jewish father would his own children. Well, notice here he says he did this imploring. I'm sorry. He did this with each one of you which shows he not only taught publicly, but also from house to house. You understand what Paul's saying here? He says, I was encouraging, exhorting, and imploring each one of you. Paul's ministry to them was personal. It wasn't just some, you know, megachurch guy up there speaking to 3,000 people. Are you with me? Paul was exhorting and imploring each one of these Christians. He was among them. He was part of them. He had intimacy with them. He was teaching them from house to house. See here that discipleship cannot happen by impersonal means, but must happen at the personal level, as was exemplified with Jesus in the 12. I think this is one of, one of the imbalances in the modern Christian, American Christian church. We, we, we allow our congregations to get so large that people who are um, uh, parishioners can just come in and plop back down in a pew somewhere back on the 47th row, and you know what? Nobody ever knows who they are, or what they do, how they live. There's never any accountability for the way they live, much less some kind of focused discipline, disciple-making that takes place whereby we're learning how to live a disciplined Christian life and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in obedience. Are you with me? If we just bring them in and plop them down on the pew for one cold snack a week, let me tell you what's going what's gonna to come of that, right? It'll be like the statistics in America where supposedly 78% of all uh, Americans are, are uh, Christians and, and believe in God, right? And, and yet we live in this culture that we live in. What a bunch of fooey. Are you with me? Well, how does that happen? Well, that happens because people sit back there on the 47th pew and there's no accountability for their life to anybody. And even if there was, right, many of those churches don't, don't even know what church discipline is. 
because they don't even have sin on their radar. Why? Because they don't mention the word in their preaching. <laughs> you know, they, remember the R word and the S word? You know, the R word is repent and the S word is sin. And you know what the B word is? Blood. They don't mention the blood. You know, or the C word. You know what the C word is? The cross. We, we remove all of those things, right? So that our so that our seekers will be comfortable, <laughs> right? So that they'll come in and they'll be comfortable sitting back there on the 47th row back. And you know, God forbid that somebody should say, "Hey, brother." I notice you're living with your girlfriend. Did you know that God sends people to hell for that? God forbid that somebody should be discomforted by their sinful lifestyle. Are you with me? Am I getting through to you? <laughs> Listen, the idea is not to make sinners comfortable. The idea is to make them extremely uncomfortable in their sin. Are you with me? So uncomfortable that God tells us if you keep it up, you're going to wind up in the lake of fire. And let me tell you, there's no comfort there. No comfort at all. And in order to get there, you need to know what the C word is and what the B word is and what the R word is and what the S word are. You with me? If you don't get those in view, you're going to the lake of fire. Because the only way you can be saved from that is by repentance from sin. Uh, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that was poured out by him on the cross. Are you with me? And that was to deal with your sin problem. And that's what the gospel is all about. It isn't so that Jesus can give you a good purpose for your life. Although that will happen if you repent and trust in Christ. You'll have a great magnanimous purpose for your life. And that's true. But if you don't deal with that sin problem, family, you're in big trouble. Amen? Are you with me? And, And that's... Uh, what's happening is that <clears throat> if we just seek to make people comfortable and God is this big grandpa in the sky just patting everybody on the head and wishing everybody, blowing everybody kisses, right? Let me tell you, it's no wonder people don't fear God because that kind of God, he's not scary at all. Why should I fear him? He's grandpa. I'm sorry. I really don't mean to sound mocking or scoffing. I just mean to try to tell you how empty this modern American Christianity really is. It's empty. It's been emptied of its power. Are you, are you with me? And I'm looking for ways to describe that. I, I don't mean to, to make a mockery of it, although it is worthy of ridicule. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Christianity. I'm sorry, Paul had close relations with these Christians, so much so that he was able to implore them as a father would his own children. Christianity does not come without commandments and accountability that are to be fully obeyed. Proper Christian discipling comes with serious discipline and effort to see that disciples learn obedience to God's holy word. And this obedience is to be motivated by intense devotion and love for God and for his son, Jesus Christ. This is essential to Christian life. As Jesus said in John 14:21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I want to read this to you one more time. Proper Christian discipling comes with serious discipline and effort to see that disciples learn obedience. 
Family, do you realize what Jesus did with the 12? That's our model for the way that Christians are supposed to live and act in the church. And what it wasn't, it wasn't plopping them back on the 47th row back and letting them just sneak in for one cold snack a week. These guys had to live with Jesus every day. Okay? And he was exhorting and encouraging and imploring them to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what was right, to glorify God with their life, to make their life count for God's glory and to stop sinning against him. Right? He was imploring them like that. But yet he would do it with them as a mother tenderly nurturing and gently caring for her own. You know, this great balance in that disciple-making process. But look, discipling is not just something Jesus did with the 12. It was that, that example that the 12 learned and went out and did with the early church, which is why the early church was so effective. It's why these Thessalonians were so effective, because Paul came in there, and man, he did the hard work of disciple-making. He implored these people. He encouraged them. He exhorted them. He gently cared for them. He worked night and day not to be a burden to them. He was there pouring into their life. And, and they grew up real fast. <laughs> Are you with me? That's what discipleship looks like. You know, we have this form in the modern church that we follow. And I want to tell you, if it's not modeled after what Jesus did with the 12, it's not the right kind of Christian mentoring and leadership that needs to take place with new believers. Okay? In other words, new Christians need to be discipled. They need a disciple maker like Jesus who's going to spend regular, intimate time with them at a personal level, level, exhorting, encouraging, and imploring them to learn how to walk in a disciplined relationship with God, to learn how to meditate on the Word of God every day and let that Word come in and change them, to learn how to commune with God in prayer and to carry all their burdens to God every day and to learn to trust God by faith when things are difficult in life. And, and, and to learn how to fellowship with Christians on a regular basis so that they get in the fellowship of godly Christians. And you know what? You ain't going to get out of line if you've got 14 godly Christians meeting with you every three days. You understand what I'm saying? As soon as you get off the path, someone's going to grab you by the scruff of the neck. And they're going to say, what are you doing? You understand? Fellowship. We stay with, the, we stay with all the sheep. Bah! All in, all in one big big clump here, you know? Because, you know, out there, you know, there's all kinds of loco weed. You go out there and you wander off and you eat that stuff, you know what happens? And there's wolves out there. There's, you know what a shepherd does? He walks around the outside of the whole group of sheep, right? The 99 that are all there, right? And he runs off all those wolves and he leads them to the right place where they eat the right thing. And, you know, when they're all together, they're all safe. And they're all warm and they're all sound. You with me? That's why we new baby believers need to learn to have regular fellowship with godly Christians. It's a, it's a fundamental discipline of Christian life to have regular fellowship. That's why we have so many Lone Ranger Christians. They go to these churches. They're empty. They have no power. They go there. They get hurt by, by ungodly people that are there. And, and various circumstances and situations before long, they throw up their hands and say, man, I don't want to do this church thing. I can't do this church thing. And you know what? It's because they, they went to a thing that called itself a church, but in there they didn't find the love and the grace and the power of holy living 
They didn't experience what grace is really like. They didn't experience what joy and, 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 and kindness and patience is like. You with me? Which kind of speaks to us about how we ought to be treating people that come in among our fellowship. Amen? Amen. I'm rambling. Sorry. I'm enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> okay, praise the Lord. Uh, we better pray. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. Give me two more minutes. I'll end this section here. Christian leaders are not offering nice suggestions for people to improve their quality of life or offering therapy for their dark and sinful hearts. They are not to coddle their selfish pride of men or to entertain them by cleverly invented stories tickling their ears. They are instead proclaiming divine imperatives which are to be fully obeyed. And this with strong exhortation and encouragements accompanied with much warning of serious consequences for disobedience. Consider it what Paul writes in chapter 4 of the same book. He says in verse 1, uh, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 1 and following, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, that as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel all the more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, look, we exhort you and we, we gave you instruction of how you ought to live to please God. Listen to what he says in verse 2. You know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You see Paul's fatherly ministry? You see what Paul means when he says we were imploring you? What were we imploring you not to do? Not to be sexually immoral. We were imploring you to change your wicked ways, right? And to do what's right. By whose authority? By the authority of the Lord Jesus, who you have come and surrendered your, your life to. Amen? Paul says, we were giving you commandments. We were giving you instruction on how you ought to live. But look, he's even got a warning. He says uh, uh, that no one ought to defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. Paul was solemnly warning his church that they needed to abstain from sin because God was an avenger of sin. You see that? And at the same time, family, he proved to be gentle among them as a mother tenderly cares and nurtures her babes. It's a kind of a paradoxical thing, this ministry of Paul, isn't it? But nevertheless, we, we see this modeled in our Lord Jesus, and hopefully we see it in good Christian leaders. And if you don't have Christian leaders like that, family, you need to call them to account. They don't belong there. They're to be tested first. And once they pass the test, then they can serve. Amen? And if they disqualify themselves by their behavior, you know what you're to do? You're to have more than one witness, two or three witnesses, and you are to confront them. Don't tolerate it. 
Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this example of leadership that Paul has given us. We thank you that you saw fit to record these things for us, that we could understand them, that we could model uh, our church and our leadership after him. God, what a difficult thing this is. How can we sinners behave in a devout, upright, and blameless manner? Only by supernatural power, God. And so we bow our heads and, and we look to you, Father, for strength, for courage, for faith, for hope, for devoted love to you. We ask that you would change our hearts, that you would fashion us in your likeness, and, and that, God, we could, could be an example, even as this Thessalonian church was. Help us, God. Help us. We, we, we want to be like Jesus, and, and we long to be like Jesus. So help us in this great desire. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.